So here we are on Father's Day, not an official church holiday, but often uh, Mother's Day, Father's Day tend to be um, acknowledged and honored in the church. And this, we need to admit, is not always a comfortable thing. Um, For starters, there are many people who grew up without fathers or mothers. And for many, they grow up with bad fathers or mothers. And so the whole idea of referring to God with parental language or um, talking about church as family as we have our banner over there can be tough. It can be difficult. And yet um, I choose to see the beauty in that because when we get together, we recognize that we are family together and that God is using us to redeem those relationships that may be broken. Um, You may be being called to be a parent of sorts to someone in this family, this congregation. You may be being called to be a brother, a sister, an aunt, an uncle to someone who hasn't had that kind of love in their life. And so my prayer is that this would be a place where we would all be able to come together and acknowledge our relationship to our one true father, our father God, and how he makes his family and how he is the only one's perfect. And boy, that takes a load off my shoulders as a dad to say that's not my job to be the perfect father. Um, God's already that father for us. And apparently in um, acknowledging the fact that I'm getting older, I just had a birthday too, and being a father makes you feel old. Um, I decided to print my sermon out in a little teeny tiny font today. So this should be fun. I guess I'm trying to stretch myself a little bit. I don't know why I did that. Um, We are going to be continuing in Exodus. We're going to be looking at Exodus 16. So if you have a Bible handy or you have a phone or device, you want to follow along. I encourage you to do that. We've been moving through Exodus. We've been hearing these great stories that many of us grew up with in Sunday school or have seen in film. The stories of Moses and his call to lead the people out of Egypt. We've looked at the plagues that God brought to show his power and to free his people from slavery. We looked last week at this um, iconic story of the crossing of the Red Sea. And we talked about how that was not only really the moment of birth for God's people as they left Egypt, but it was also um, something that we look at as Christians to remind us of our new birth and baptism and how those waters symbolize a new life and a new start for us. And this is why I love getting into scripture, because so often uh, we hear these stories in pieces and parcels, right? So when I was a kid in Sunday school, I remember the story of the Red Sea crossing. And what I remember was, hey, God saved them. They crossed the Red Sea. And there was this great celebration and song. So if you're reading through Exodus with us um, on your own, you will read through the song that is written in Exodus 15. Um, Sometimes called the Song of Moses. It has other names as well. And so you you hear that and you go, oh, that's a great story. That's a wonderful story. But if you forget the whole other pieces and parts, like the fact that God brought them back to a place where they would be ambushed. And then they sat there for a whole night complaining and in fear. You know, that God should have just left them in Egypt to die. You know, were there not enough graves in Egypt? They say to God that she brought us out here to die. And so the story goes on, and it doesn't take very long before some similar themes begin to come up. So they're going through the desert, and they are rightfully upset because they don't have a lot of water. I think it's a legitimate complaint if you're traveling through the desert. They come to a spring, and the water is bitter. It's not worth drinking. So um, God uses Moses to do a miracle where he makes the water drinkable. 
And then um, after that complaining, in that moment, they come to, and by the way, they're saying, once again, you know, he brought us out here to die of thirst, kind of a thing. Um, is this God's plan? And then they get to this beautiful place, Elam, and it apparently has 12 springs and 70 palms. And there's not much to say there because things are apparently pretty darn good. But they don't stay there because they have to keep moving and they move on. And that's where we come into the story in Exodus 16, beginning in verse 1. The whole congregation of the Israelites set out from Elam and Israel came to the wilderness of Sin. By the way, I think it's important to point out the wilderness of Sin is not called that because of their sin. It means something else in Hebrew, but just so you know. Still interesting. The wilderness of sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th, 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots, that's pots cooking meat, so I think stew, and ate our fill of bread. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And the Lord said to Moses, I am going to rain bread from heaven for you, and each day the people shall go out and gather enough for that day. And that way I will test them, whether they will follow my instruction or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather on other days. So Moses and Aaron said to the Israelites, In the evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your complaining against the Lord. For what are we that you complain against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening, and your fill of bread in the morning... Because the Lord has heard the complaining that you utter against him. What are we? Your complaining is not against us, but against the Lord. Verse 13. In the evening, quails came up and covered the camp. In the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a fine, flaky substance. As fine as frost on the ground. The Israelites saw it. They said to one another, What is it? Some of your Bibles may have manna in there somewhere. For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather as much of it as each of you needs, and omer to a person according to the number of persons, all providing for those in their own tents. The Israelites did so, some gathering more, some less, But when they measured it with an omer, those who gathered much had nothing over, and those who gathered little had no shortage. They gathered as much as each of them needed. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over until morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and became foul. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it as much as each needed. But when the sun grew hot... It melted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we all come to the table to eat every day, multiple times a day, with hunger. 
And we often don't think of how you provide for us, but we know that this is true, that you are a provider. And I ask that you would help us to hear the words you have for us through your Holy Spirit as we look at this story. In your name we pray. Amen. So this is the story of the manna, as we often say it in English. Um, I'll teach you a little Hebrew word right here. It's manhu. And I like that because they actually say, what is it? So if you want to say the Hebrew right, okay, first of all, say manhu. Manhu, okay. Now if you want to say it right, you really got to go, manhu? <laughs> go ahead, try There you go, because it's like, what is it? And that's how it gets its name. Isn't that great? I love some of these stories. And this is one of the stories, again, that, um, you know, is, is, you know, brings up our imagination. I mean, what would that be like to have something just sort of like frost over the ground? And I always think of snow because that's kind of the closest thing that I can think of. That I'd go out and I would, you know, as a kid, I'd take the frost and I'd eat it. Um, of course, it obviously didn't taste as good as the manna. But hey, did you hear that theme that's repeating itself throughout Exodus? Right? The theme that, once again... They have very quickly, I mean, we're only a month and a half into this journey, or two months and a half, excuse me. Once again, they have forgotten about all that God has done. And they're complaining that God has brought them out to die of hunger this time. Okay, God, you saved us from the Egyptians. You you saved us from dying of thirst, but apparently your plan is to let us die of hunger. Why, God? Right? This is the cry that they bring out. Complaining, once again... Does this pattern sound familiar to anybody else beyond the story of Exodus? Maybe I'm the only one, but I find that oftentimes this is a pattern I see happening in my life. It's a pattern of, you know, acknowledging when God answers prayers of something that I desperately have been praying for and needing. And I might even say it's a miracle that God has done it. And I give God the credit and I give God the glory. And then weeks, months, maybe a year later, something else comes up. And I'm in a place of being complacent, fearful, maybe angry. God has forgotten me. And this has been a pattern of God's people. We see it throughout scriptures. Um, Judges is a classic example where we see this kind of thing. As people's hearts constantly turn away from God. By the way, this is one of the reasons why I feel it is so important for me to have a rhythm of worship in my life. One of the reasons we chose the name Tidelands for this church is because we wanted, as we were doing this discernment process, we understood that there's some important rhythms that we have in our life that are kind of like the tide. You know, the tide is that reliable change in the water that happens day in and day out, you know, a couple times every day. And that rhythm, uh, the, the rhythms we have in our life, taking those and putting them under the lordship of God, rhythms of eating, rhythms of resting, rhythms of working, Rhythms of recreating, having fun, um, rhythms of worship. For me, I have to have a regular time of worship with others in my life every week. And I have since I was a kid. In part, for no other reason, if not just to remind myself that God is taking care of me. That God is still doing what God has always done. And that it's just me that tends to forget Again, I, I have a hard time being too hard on the Israelites as they're going through this. After all, they're making a very difficult journey. When you're out in the desert or you're in some kind of wilderness country and you're um, 
you know, on your own or you're, you're looking for food. There's a, a rule of threes they talk about in survival, which I find fascinating when you think about it. Um, the, the rule goes something like this. You can go about three minutes without air. You can go about three hours without shelter. You can go three days without water. And you can go three weeks without food. And if you remember that and you're in a situation where you, you're in a survival situation, you can prioritize these. I don't think anyone has a hard time prioritizing the air. We pretty much get that one pretty quick if you're having a hard time breathing, if you're underwater or something, right? But the idea that you've got to find shelter, first and foremost, shelter from the sun, shelter from the freezing cold, something like that. You, you need to um, find water right away. That's going to be your most important thing. And then you need to have food. Isn't it interesting how as we go through the Exodus story, we actually see something somewhat like this? They're out traveling and the, the shelter they need isn't necessarily from the sun right away, but it's from the Egyptian army, which is coming down. Their safety is in danger, right? And God saves them from that. And then right after that, they're saying, hey, we, we're, we're going to die of thirst. We need water. And God provides water for them. Out of the rock, we need to talk about that. And water by turning the bitter water um, clean. And then they say, we're going to be dying of hunger. And God provides food for them. God has provided and taught them that he is going to provide them everything they need. He puts them in situations where all of their basic needs are under threat. And he provides for them. And every single one. I find that this is how God has always worked. God is very patient with his people. God is very patient with us. And he at times, um, because life sometimes provides us situations, and sometimes I think God leads us into situations where we will have to learn lessons of God providing. I was actually reflecting on this myself just this morning. I, um, you know, have times in my life when I stress over finances for various reasons, whether it's the church's finances or whether it's my own finances or whether it's thinking about paying for college, which my kids aren't even, you know, applying for yet or whatever it might be. You know, I have these things that bring up stress in my life. And yet there's been these really powerful situations for me in my life when I've had times of real financial need, when I've had nothing short, uh, nothing less than a miracle happen that I couldn't have done on my own, I couldn't claim, but somehow God provides in ways that are just beyond my expectation. And I have to remind myself of that. I mean, God has taught me this lesson, but it's a lesson I, I am in danger of forgetting. So in those moments, I remind myself of that. And God is doing this for his people as he leads them on this Exodus journey, reminding them of how he will provide for everything that they need. In this case, it's this miracle of quail and this miracle of manna. Every evening, fresh meat. Every morning, fresh bread. I mean, just think about this. For, for any of us, that sounds pretty sweet. But for an ancient people who, who not only don't have supermarkets, but also aren't even living near a market of Egypt or anywhere else at this point where people bring food in together. They have to provide all of their food on their own. One of the pieces of the story that maybe we don't think about that much. Remember, Moses made a very big deal about how he was, he was not going to allow... Uh, at one point, Pharaoh said, I'll let you all go to worship God, but you have, you have to leave your livestock. And, and Moses, you know, he drew a line of sand. He's like, no, we're all going, all of our livestock too. So they take their livestock with them, but that's only going to get you so far. 
And so they're in need of food. They don't have access to this, so they have to provide it. They have to hunt. They have to, I don't know if they can fish, maybe when they're by the sea. But they have to, um, you know, they're, they're not planting gardens. They're on the move. So food is a serious issue. So how sweet a deal is this? Every morning, all you have to do is walk out of your tent and gather up some bread for breakfast. And every evening, I mean, I imagine the quail was a little bit harder. You're going to have to use your bow or a net or something, but they're going to be there. The meat's going to come to you. You don't even have to go walking out through the desert looking for it. I mean, this is a dream come true for people in their situation. God is so good in the way he provides. I want to stop right here and just talk about something that theologically sometimes creeps into our thinking and we could have a tendency to go down this road if we're not careful. One possible distortion of this text could sound something like this. Obey God and he will rain down wealth upon you. The reason I think this is a, is a danger is because there's been times when, when we, this theology creeps into the church and creeps into our own thinking where we say if we would just pray in the right way or we, if we would just pray enough, like enough quantity of time, if we would just read our Bible more, if we would just be more morally right with whatever sin it is that we're struggling with, If we would just do those things, then God would just pour out his abundance of riches on us in a very tangible way. I'm talking about money and food and, you know, car and house. As I mentioned, that is a distortion of this text and others. And, And I can say that with confidence because if you look at the scripture, you can see that, first of all, The people are not being obedient. That is not what's happening here. That's a real stretch to make that claim in this case. At every turn, they're complaining and saying, why didn't you just leave us in slavery? (laughs) That's their accusation. You heard here, they're throwing it at Moses and Aaron, but Moses and Aaron say, hey, who are we? When you say that, you're saying it to God. So they're constantly accusing God and saying, it would just have been better if you would have just left us in slavery. Our slavery, right? So they're not being obedient. They're not, you can't say they have this like great strong faith. Sometimes people will take a text like um, where Jesus teaches about the mustard seed of faith. And you, if you just had a mustard seed of faith, you could move a mountain and people go see if you had the right quantity, you could do it. And I mean, again, a distortion of the text. A mustard seed's small on purpose. You don't need a lot. Good. God, I'm glad I only need a mustard seed because that's all I got, right? And that's, that's what's happening here. There's, there's no great faith at all on their part. You can't look at them and say, see, if you were just like the Israelites back then, God would rain wealth upon you. The other thing is that the provision that God gives to them is absolutely unconditional. He doesn't say, I'm going to give you manna every morning and I'm going to give you quail every night as long as you. There's none of that. The only condition God puts upon this is he says, if you try to take too much or you don't take enough, don't worry about it. It's going to all equal out in the end. And by the way, I want you to obey the Sabbath. I don't want you going out to have to gather and hunt, even for the stuff that's out, out in front of your tents. I don't even want you to do that on the Sabbath. So I'm going to give you a complete day of rest. So you just gather twice as much the day before and it'll last. 
And of course, you know, some of the people don't believe that word. They get greedy and they try to store it up. And you heard it turns into worms or it melts. It doesn't work out. That's the only condition. But otherwise, it's, it's completely unconditional. God just says, I'm going to do this for you. And this is the story of God. And it's so good for us to remind ourselves of that. What we're reading is, <clears throat> it's not the story of the great superhero Moses or his sidekick Aaron. It's not the story of the powerful faith of the you know, early Israelites. It's the story of God. It's the story of what God is doing and always has done. There is this interesting connection as we read the story about the, the um, provision of manna, the connection of manna and the Sabbath rest. It's an ongoing reminder of God's provision in their life. You see, every, every week they have one day where they're resting and God is not providing, but he shows them, I've provided enough for you that you can actually rest. And so built into this, this miracle of the food is also this, a chance to be reminded of how God cares for them in case they forget again. So once a week, they're going to have that day when they wake up and there's not going to be anything there. And there's going to be that temptation to say, oh, look, it's happening. God's going to let us die of hunger. And God wants that to be a part of the regular rhythm in their life. This reminder of how he cares for them. And I would say that for us, this is so important, too. We're going to be talking about Sabbath in a couple of weeks here. But um, it is good to have some form of Sabbath in your life. And what I mean by that is some form of a break. Some form of a rest from the work that you do. It's something that God has built into the life of worship of people forever. And as we saw when Jesus was confronting the Pharisees, there is a temptation to turn this into something way too religious. Again, it becomes much more about us and what we're doing versus what God and what God is doing. But I do believe that it's important for us to have those times of break and rest so that we can remind ourselves that, you know what, we're not indispensable. We can take a whole day away from email, away from text, away from work, whatever it is, and the world still spins. It's good for us to be reminded. We, um, as we began Tidelands, we had this uh, philosophy with our discernment team that began to see, but it was actually a real, I shouldn't say philosophy, theology, that really began to undergird everything we did. We had people who came to us. We had the families who were gathering together for the sermon. Um, two of us had, two of the families had very young kids. Our kids were, you know, quite a bit younger. And one of the families had a child on the way, they were expecting. And people said, you're nuts to try to start a church with that group. How can you do that? You've got to be parents to your kids and the whole thing. And, and we just felt like if God is calling us to start a church and we can't do it well and still be good parents and still be good families, then what exactly are we starting? And that has been a philosophy and, a, like I said, really a theology that has undergirded everything that we have done as a, as a new church. We're constantly asking ourselves, what are we creating and is it more about what we're doing or is it trusting what God is doing? You notice we don't have massive amounts of programs and that's very intentional. We believe that God doesn't need massive amounts of programs to work in our lives. And 
fact, we believe that the healthiest thing we can do as disciples of Jesus Christ is be in relationship with people who are broken and hurting in this world. And the more we program our life together as a church, the less opportunity you have to do that. Now, that's not to say we're not ever going to have any of the kind of programs that many other churches do or that they're all bad. That's not what I'm saying either. And many of us have benefited greatly from the programs that other churches have put together for our lives. And so that's not what we're saying. But to hear me on this, what I am saying is that we need to be thinking about what we are creating. Are we creating um, patterns and rhythms in our life that make us very busy and make us very important? Or are we, are we creating patterns and rhythms in our life that help us engage with the important things that God is doing and the call that God has us for us in our life? One of the things I want to do with this church um, in the near future is provide some opportunities for us to go through a strengths finder assessment. It's a very helpful assessment because what it does is it helps you look at yourself similar to maybe some gifts inventories that some of you have done, spiritual gifts. It helps you look at yourself and say, what are the, what are the things that God has given to me uh, and who I am that are my best strengths that God can use to impact the world? And then rather than saying, you know, okay, then how do I use those to grow this, this church institution? Say, how do I use those in the life that God has placed me in? How do I leverage those strengths for the kingdom of God? It's a very fun exercise to go through. And it's really helpful, and I hope to do that with us soon. Finally, I want to just talk about the whole bread from heaven theme that we hear in here. Isn't it interesting? God says, I'm going to rain bread from heaven. That might bring up images of cloudy with a chance of meatballs or something like that. I mean, it's, again, it's, it's meant to be that spectacular, right? The food just falls from the sky. You just put your plate out and there it is. It's a pretty cool thing. Do you remember when Jesus was tempted and he was out in the desert and one of the temptations was, if you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread, right? And Jesus could have done that. And Jesus you know, turns away that temptation. And he talks about the importance of how you know, human beings don't live by bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do you remember the time when Jesus was out in the wilderness and there were thousands of hungry people? And how he took just a little bit of bread and a little bit of meat, fish, and he multiplied that and every single person was fed? Interesting. I want to read to you John 6, 25. It wasn't long after that. And this, I, I love this connection. We don't always see this in the scriptures. But it wasn't long after that. I'm oh, sorry, John 6. I think I said John 25. John 6. It wasn't long after one of those feedings of the multitudes in the desert. When the people followed Jesus. They followed him across the Sea of Galilee. They found him the next morning. And this is what they say. This is 625, John 625. When they found Jesus on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them, Very truly, I tell you, you were looking for me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. 
for it is on him that God the Father has set a seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to perform the works of God? Jesus answered, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, What sign are you going to give us then, so that we may see it and believe you? What work are you performing? Now listen to this. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. It is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So do you see what's going on here? They got fed the night before, miraculously. And then Jesus crosses the sea. They chase him across the sea. They come the next morning. They haven't had breakfast yet. And Jesus knows what's going on. He says, you're looking for me because your stomachs are, got filled with food last night. And so then they say, okay, yeah, well, you know, what do we need to do? They get this theological question, you know, question and answer session with Jesus. Um, okay, Jesus, what sign will you give us because Moses gave us bread from heaven? <laughs> You see the little manipulation that's going on here, right? Through verse 32. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Very similar to what the woman of the well said when they were talking about water. And Jesus said, this water will become a spring of, of living water. She said, give me this water always. Right? Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus is the living bread. Jesus is the bread that comes down from heaven. That's actually the Greek scripture we have that goes around our, our communion plate over here. Jesus is the bread from heaven, the living bread. When Jesus talks about eternal life, and Jesus talks about how those who eat his... If we continue in that scripture, you'll see Jesus talking about those who need to eat his body and drink his blood. And it says at the end of that that many went away from him. They couldn't, in, they couldn't stay. And Jesus even turned to his own disciples and said, are you going to leave too? And they said, well, where else will we go? Who else has the words of eternal life? When Jesus is talking about how there's this bread, there's this water that brings eternal life that is more important than the bread we eat and the water that we drink. It's more important for survival than those things. He's talking about something that, that when he says eternal life, he's talking about something that is a quality of life. Not just a quantity of life. And I think that's where people often miss it. Right? They're thinking about this bread. They're thinking about this water. And they're thinking about how can I get enough so that it always lasts. And Jesus is saying you don't need all of that. In fact, that when he responded to the temptation of the devil, he said, um, you don't live by bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. Eternal life is not just a promise that there's going to be this quantity of days that you will be able to enjoy forever. But Jesus is saying, what I am promising you is something that is much richer and deeper than bread, much um, more refreshing and fulfilling than water. It's much better than just having a long life. What I'm offering to you is a quality of life, of living that only God can give and only God can provide. And so we see this theme in scripture that if you live your life for food, clothes, drink, pleasure, safety, security, 
you're ultimately going to see it slip through your fingers and it's going to be gone. If, however, you live your life for the heart of God, and his heart is that all would come to be part of his family and know him, if you live your life for the heart of God, then he says your life will be abundant. He says your life will be eternal. It's going to have this quality that you simply can't imagine. Let's pray. Lord, I think many of us come to worship on a Sunday like this, and we have running through us the worries and the stress and the challenges of life. Both those things that have happened recently and looking forward as to what we anticipate. For some of us, we come even with relationships that are difficult and hard. And we're seeking you because you are the only one who gives us true life. Lord, my prayer for all of us this morning is that we would have an experience of that eternal life that you give to us. That we could learn to find joy and peace in this moment that you have given to us and every moment ahead. That we would learn to live in your presence day to day, knowing that you're going to take care of the rest, that you do provide, that you are good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.